Father Brown got to his feet, putting his hands behind him. Odd, isn't it, he said, that a thief and a vagabond should repent when so many who are rich and secure remain hard and frivolous and without fruit for God or man? But there, if you will excuse me, you trespass a little on my province. If you doubt the penitence as a practical fact, there are your knives and forks. You are the twelve true fishers, and there are all your silver fish. But he has made me a fisher of men. Did you catch this man? asked the colonel, frowning. Father Brown looked him full in his frowning face. Yes, he said. I caught him with an unseen hook and an invisible line, which is long enough to let him wander to the ends of the world and still to bring him back with a twitch upon the thread. Welcome to Pints with Chesterton, a podcast where two millennial women dive into the wonderful and whimsical works of Gilbert Keith Chesterton. I'm Grace. And I'm Marie. Join us each week as we endeavor to take in the wit and wisdom of this larger-than-life journalist, fiction writer, poet, and illustrator. On today's episode, we are discussing The Queer Feet, which is part of the collection The Innocence of Father Brown. Grace. All right. Marie. It's so good to see you again. You too. I am excited to be talking about this story today. We're going to meet some familiar characters. But first, what are we drinking? I am still sipping on Lagavulin (laughs) this week. I have a husband who loves scotch, and so he keeps me supplied with many different scotch products to try. And I, I really like this one. It's very, very smoky. I'm always cold in the winter, and it warms you up a little bit. What are you drinking today? So this is the last of my Guinness. Um, So maybe next week I'll have something more interesting. But uh, yeah, I just, Guinness is a staple and I love it. So here I am. Perfect. What have you been reading this week? I was recommended for years to read Death Comes to the Archbishop by Willa Cather. Yes. And I am enjoying it so much. I love this story so far. I think that is a book that I would love to discuss on a podcast someday. Maybe we'll do some sort of like after hours hours, uh, discussion (laughs) on that, but I'm really enjoying it. It's basically a bishop is assigned to a part of New Mexico that has not been explored by anyone. And so it's very difficult land to travel through and he's trying to figure out who his flock are. I'm only maybe six chapters into the book, but it is a fascinating story so far. Right. Have you read the actually, book before? I have, and I love it. And I think it's actually based on a true story, um, partially. I, uh, I read it several years ago, and the descriptions of the scenery in New Mexico were so vivid and beautiful. It just made me want to go. I've never been out there before, and I would really love to do a road trip to Santa Fe and listen to it along the way. Pines with Chesterton Road Trip 2021. (laughs) We could do a pilgrimage to the to the churches out there. Yeah she she describes like all of these warm reds and Mm. um, earth tones and like the the whitewashed adobe buildings Mm. and the descriptions of the people are also just very interesting and the relationships between the native peoples and 
the priests. It's a fascinating book. And it's honestly a period of history in the U.S. that I haven't really considered very much. I mean, we hear a lot in school about people going out west mm-hmm. and gold mining in California. And we don't really hear too much about New Mexico or Arizona or the history of of settling those states. So it's been honestly really interesting. I'd like to read a history book after this about the settling of New Mexico. Absolutely. Have you still been reading Isaiah with your class? Yes. Yeah. So we're recording this still in Advent and I... Um, I've just been reading a chapter of Isaiah with them every day and just kind of skipping around to some of the more famous passages that are very Adventy, And yes. uh, it's just been really great to read through them. There's so much hope in Isaiah, which is funny because the time period that he's writing is, you know, just before the destruction of Jerusalem. And he kind of sees that coming and is warning people against it, but at the same time is um, looking forward with hope to the restoration of, of Israel and ultimately in the kingdom of heaven. And so um, it's really cool for my students because there's a lot of typology. There's a lot of things they can see fulfilled in Christ very, very clearly. Um, but then also just taking that as a looking forward to the end of time as well and our lives and how the things that we suffer with now, um, God wants to heal and bring to completion later. It's just been, it's been really good and really hopeful. Yeah. And this episode is coming out on New Year's Day. So happy new year. Happy new year. Y'all we're out of 2020 and maybe 2021 will be better. Woo! Yes. No, 2021 will be better. We're going to say that. (laughs) Yes. 2021 has a lot of, um, a lot of hope and promise. Okay, well, I am going to jump in and read a summary of The Queer Feet, and then we're going to just go right into our discussion. Great. Every year at the Vernon Hotel, a group of men who have dubbed themselves the 12 True Fishermen meet for a very secretive and elite dinner party. This exclusive hotel is frequented by only the most privileged of English society. Each year, they dine with only the finest fish silverware. In this quaint and tiny establishment, only 24 people can dine at a time, and only the best service is offered by a staff of 15. On this very day, the day that only 12 men attend their seemingly frivolous dinner, one Italian waiter experiences a paralytic stroke. Father Brown is called over to the hotel to hear the man's confession, and then he passes away. Father Brown requests a private space and some writing materials following the confession, which the hotel owner, Lever, grudgingly gives. While there, he is quite forgotten, as the staff is serving the most important meal of the year. He writes his note. Meanwhile, he hears the most curious noises along the passage outside the room. The long rush of rapid footsteps followed by the slow, swinging stamp of footsteps in the hall. Father Brown is certain they are the same pair of boots walking, since they have a distinctive creak, and he is also sure that something queer is afoot. The plates and cutlery are cleared away, and the staff realize that the poor dead waiter had been replaced by another man, not one of their own. Father Brown intercepts the thief as he tries to escape with the silverware, and discovers that he has been pretending to be a gentleman to all the waiters, and pretending to be a waiter to all the gentlemen. Father Brown calls Flambeau to conversion, Flambeau repents, and escapes in order to start living an honest life. However, he leaves the fishy flatware behind. Father Brown returns the silverware to the rightful owners and leaves to catch a penny omnibus. Dun, 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 dun. <laughs> 
The first thing that I want to talk about is just Chesterton's hilarious descriptions and extremely accurate perception, I think at least, of uh, aristocratic lifestyle. Um, so I was just laughing so hard um, when I was listening to this story and the narrator keeps saying little things like, supposing that you have the star-defying audacity to address such a being, like talking about these, <laughs> these men that are meeting for this meeting, I mean, meeting for this dinner, um, and just talking about like coming upon, like, would you ever come upon this hotel? Would you ever come upon this meeting? Well, no, of course not, because it's in this high society where nobody knows. It's extremely exclusive, you know, and the, I don't know, just his narrator is, is really funny talking about that. In the preface of the story, he basically says, you'll never ascend high enough to attend a dinner at such a hotel, and you'll never descend low enough to meet Father Brown in the streets, basically. And so he's like, but you need to know this story. Actually, something that I, I noticed that I thought was interesting about this story was that the other stories um, that we've heard so far, we've talked about um, the Blue Cross and the Secret Garden, were told and we were observing as a third party viewer, but um, they weren't told by like the voice of a distinct narrator. Mm -hmm. And this story is told by a narrator as mm -hmm. if he heard it firsthand from Father Brown. And I thought that was really cool. Yeah, that, I thought that was really neat as well. And it's kind of funny. Um, you wonder like, is Chesterton the narrator? Like, is there yes. some other character that he's trying to make? You know, cause he does know Father Brown. So, uh, Father O'Connor, I should say. I was laughing at this in parentheses, you know, um, if to pursue the same vein of improbable conjecture, you were to meet a mild, hardworking little priest named Father Brown, <laughs> you know, just like the phrases that he uses, like later on, um, he keeps making little comments like that. Uh, when you enter, as you never will, the Vernon Hotel, <laughs> you know. Yeah. Um, and I think that is really a big theme of this story. I think the, the, contrast between rich and poor, the contrast between this sort of over-the-top aristocratic lifestyle with um, the poor, the working classes, even the priests. Um, Father Brown being from this little small Essex village, you know, he's not anyway, he's not the Archbishop of Canterbury. He's not, you know, he's not anyone he just that is, happens to be the closest priest for right. to come hear this man's confession. Right. And it's almost a um, an inconvenience, you know, for the people of the hotel, like, oh, well, you know, I guess we shouldn't call a priest, you know, <laughs> like, right. since this man is Catholic, like, you know, they don't want to let this sort of um, average everyday man of, of the working Sullying class their do, lobby. Right, <laughs> yeah. to come into their hotel, especially on the night when the 12 true fishermen are dining yeah. at the, their establishment. So, um, so yeah, I just, I don't know, I kind of want to talk about that, that theme of, of rich and poor. I think there's some, um, some really great quotes throughout this story, particularly along the lines of what Chesterton calls the great leveler. Um, mm. He's speaking about death, yeah. um, speaking about how death is something, and this being a, a mystery. Of course, it's, in this sense, it's not a murder mystery, it's a, another um, robbery mystery, but a man has just died. And so death is something that sort of looms over the whole story. And you're kind of wondering about that. Yeah, and it's, it's sort of for sure. Right. And it plays a role in the robbery um, because Flambeau, who's the robber, is impersonating this waiter who has died. 
Um, and so, yeah, the, just the idea that death sort of shakes or should shake people awake to the fact that all of us really are equal, <laughs> that there really isn't a gap between rich and poor when, when it comes to humanity. And, um, and there's yeah, nothing, there's nothing to take with you when you do die. Absolutely. I mean, uh, the 12 fishermen, the 12 true fishermen, um, you know, they're mostly all extraordinarily wealthy men. And that doesn't change the fact that they will die just like all of the waiters who are serving them. There's this great, um, this great quote where, uh, the narrator says, there is in the world a very aged rioter and demagogue who breaks into the most refined retreats with the dreadful information that all men are brothers. And whatever, wherever this leveler went on his pale horse, it was Father Brown's trade to follow. So he's explaining why Father Brown finds himself in this, you know, over the top hotel, um, a place where he never should be. And I just, I love all the imagery in that the the leveler on his pale horse you know the yes um yeah and I like how Chesterton kind of sets the scene in this hotel in such a way to like give a view of the wealth a perspective of the wealth and the wealthy class that maybe we wouldn't understand otherwise and he kind mm -hmm. of talks about how this hotel is so important because and so exclusive because it's so inconvenient and it's mm -hmm. so small mm -hmm. and it and um I mean, we see this today absolutely in San Diego. I don't know if you see it in, I'm sure you see it in Louisiana oh, as well. I, mean, I think it's everywhere in different ways. Some of the most popular places here, well, one that I went to about a year ago with some friends was this, you know, undercover speakeasy type <laughs> um, bar where you had to like make special reservations to get in. It's tiny. I think it only seats like 12 people. You have to say a secret word to get in. And like people love that kind of thing. Like yeah. they love that exclusivity and like feeling like they're participating in something really elite and special. Yeah. Yeah. You, you feel like you are important, you know, like, oh, I'm, yeah. you know, um, but it's something that at the end of the day is so superficial, you know, um, at the end of the day is like, it's, sure you are participating in something but like is it really important you know like does it actually have an impact on anything at all um and it it's it's funny because as Chesterton is describing this society um he's like you know the majority of people have never and will never hear about these people you know um and it's not as if they're you know stealthily and anonymously like doing good works throughout society you know but they're literally just like gathering to congratulate themselves and yeah. have a good dinner you know yeah um, he, he talks about how you have to be a certain kind of person to even know that this club exists right and he talks about how they have no history and they have no purpose like you said there's no yeah. humanitarian effort behind right. this group they don't like secretly you know um wipe out um beggars from london by their extreme generosity or something they're just partying to party and to be exclusive it's just yeah it's very interesting and throughout you see the the stark contrast in the way that they're thinking and they're sort of self-referential there's different um moments when there's all you see the self-consciousness of each of 
the members of the society or some of the members of the society where they're embarrassed when things don't go the way that they've planned them to go. They feel awkward. They don't know how to handle um, actually speaking to people who are, you know, quote unquote, below them. And they can't even, <laughs> there's like a horrible line about them saying that they can't, they don't want a poor man near them as a servant or a friend. And so yeah. they sort of just freeze when when one servant stops in his tracks in the middle of the the um, dining area. If we're looking at the juxtaposition of the rich versus the poor in this story, are the waiters to blame at all for participating in this nonsense? Because they, you know, they work in an industry that perpetuates groups like this. That's interesting. But at the same time, I think people need work, people need right. to make a living. And so I would say not so much. Mm -hmm. um, but what I'd be interested to get into the mind of one of those waiters and find out, you know, what their what their thoughts would be about these people that they serve. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's very interesting to think about. Um, I, it's funny because Chesterton mentions that the society or the, the hotel rather is even for a waiter, um, more difficult to get a job at than to parliament. become a member of parliament. Yeah. <laughs> and I thought that was so funny. Yeah. I was like, well, so in a certain sense, there is some sort of, you know, desire on their part to be in this, but, um, but you never know, like maybe this is so exclusive that it pays very well and that would help yeah. support their family, you know? Yeah. So, um, so yeah, it's just, it's very interesting. What do you think about the name of the society, the 12 true fishermen. I thought this was quite an interesting selection, <laughs> but I also thought that it was the kind of thing that Chesterton loves, um, something that uh, is kind of absurd because the apostles who were fishermen, who were actual fishermen and then who were called to be fishers of men, right? Um, are nothing like this group. Um, they were men who gave up their livelihoods to live in poverty and follow Christ and sacrifice everything for um, their brothers and sisters, you know, for the rest of the world. So I thought the, the name was kind of ironic or um, just an interesting, funny choice. Um, I also thought, yeah, the imagery of the the fish service, the the forks and knives with the pearl settings were really interesting because the apostles were fishing for souls, as Father Brown says. I'm I'm a fisher of men when he says that he's a priest. Right. Um, and what are these men catching? That was the question I kept asking myself. What are they catching? And then. Uh, when they eventually get their fish service back, when they get the silverware back, you know, he says, here are your fishes. And it's sort of like, look, this is what you have to show yeah. for, for what you do and what, what you've done. Uh, it's valuable, certainly material, materially valuable, but it makes me wonder if they are more <laughs> like the man who, um, sells everything to, for the pearl of great price right yeah I thought about um, that just now certainly I think it reveals that the priorities of these men are not straight 
they're not in order and if they truly are in this you know as wealthy as he implies and as elite as he implies then losing these forks and knives would not be the end of the world right but not one of them says i mean obviously it's a it's an injustice to have something stolen from you Mm -hmm. i'm not i'm not justifying stealing but somebody broke into my car a few months ago and basically took everything in there and oh wow I was upset about it absolutely but you know some of the things that they took I thought maybe they needed it more than I did yeah yeah and it's not a justification of stealing right right. I'm not saying it's right or that there's a good reason for it but none of them had that thought like well yeah maybe somebody stole these who needed money more than we do who needed help more than we do their thought was just oh my gosh the injustice of this yeah (laughs) (laughs) so pompous yeah 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 there's um there's a great quote uh when they're figuring out that the waiter is not or the waiter was not their actual waiter um and the owner of the hotel mentions that you know one of the waiters is dead upstairs and it says there was a shocking stillness for an instant in that room it may be so supernatural is the word death that each of those idle men looked for a second at his soul and saw it as a small dried pea. <laughs> I was just like, wow, that's really, yeah. really interesting. Like really kind of almost like shocking, but yeah, but really like, what are they catching? Like, what do they have to show for their lives? You know? In the footnote, in the annotated version, it mentions a couple of other writings. Um, one of them, in one of Chesterton's other sort of mysterious set of stories called The Club of Queer Trades, um, it says the Prime Minister of England appears in court to give evidence against his valet, and after details of the statesman's household have been aired, the judge asks the Prime Minister to step forward, and, and the judge says, get a new soul. That thing's not fit for a dog. Get a new soul. <laughs> this is like really harsh but like I mean it puts it into perspective yeah 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 Yeah, well I I love the next line that um Grace put here in our notes the duke says it says he said with an idiotic kindness of wealth (laughs) is there anything we can do and it's it's kind of that attitude like money can take care of anything money can do anything it gives you a kind of security that makes you feel like you don't need God. Mm-hmm. They Like, of course he can't do anything. The man is already dead. You can't bring him back from the dead with your money. Mm. Um, I heard a homily from one of my favorite priests several months ago who talked about um, the, like what Christ says about it being easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to go into heaven. Mm -hmm. And he said, it means what it says. It is difficult to have salvation and be a wealthy person. And I think Mm -hmm. it's for that very reason that like you have this security in your wealth that makes you feel like you have more power than you do. Mm -hmm. The truth is we're all very fragile. And as you said, death is this leveler. At any time we could die, at any time we will need Christ, we do need Christ, and it's harder to see that when you don't need as much help from other people or you think that you can buy your way into or out of anything. 
Right. Yeah, absolutely. I think when we, um, when we're rich, or I should say, when we're poor, we're humbled, <laughs> you know, whether it, we like it or not, it's, it's sort of in our face all the time, um, how, how humble and how helpless we actually are. And that is a grace because it shows us the reality of our situation, um, that we need God, um, that we're totally reliant on him. And when we're rich, it very easily blinds us to that reality. Um, and it just, it's dangerous, you know? Yeah. Um, so if we're, if we are wealthy, if we are blessed with many things, um, we need to be very, I'm speaking to myself here, you know, like we need to be very intentionally aware, I guess, of the ways in which we rely on our wealth, you know, and like, yeah. what am I doing with it? Am I using it for the glory of God? Am I helping other people in any way that I can, you know, am I, am I doing these things, um, to where my life isn't all about me, you know? Yeah. Um, I think a lot of the self-consciousness that you see in these waiters when things go wrong, um, mm -hmm. as sort of a, an effect of their false sense of security, um, mm -hmm. that they've kind of created this fantasy world around them, you know, um, they've built up everything to work sort of like a well-oiled machine. Um, they have their traditions that don't really mean anything, but they can make them happen because they have the money to make them happen. And so they go every year and this stuff happens right. and nobody questions it and whatever. And so when all of a sudden you have the stolen um, fish service and you have the waiter stop dead in his tracks and realize that something is wrong, um, it kind of jerks them awake for a moment um, to recognize that I don't know maybe not recognize it but just kind of show they them feel that out of control a bit though yeah yeah um, that there's this is sort of a well-oiled machine of a fantasy world that they've created and if something goes wrong it's sort of a reminder of that that they're not ultimately in control yeah. so at the end of the story you see them sort of, even though they've been jerked awake by this whole situation for a moment, um, you see how very easily they fall right back into the kind of extravagant fantasy world. Um, so you see this moment where Father Brown is discovered by them because he's brought them back their fish service and uh, he's they, they're like, tell us the story, like what happened, you know, and there's this sort of moment of humanity. It was interesting. Um, the Colonel, who is this sort of, I don't know, gloomy figure, um, mm -hmm. it seems like he's not very happy about anything. And he's sort of complaining about this and that. But he, he's the one who is sort of amazed by this priest, genuinely, I think, and, and is like, how did you like, how did you do this? Here's someone interesting and special. Like, how did you catch this guy? Yeah. And so they, that kind of opens Father Brown up because I think Father Brown is sort of annoyed by the extravagance of this society. Absolutely. But then in that moment, he's like, oh, let me tell you, you know, and the, yeah. the humanity kind of comes out and because the colonel is willing to kind of drop the facade of like, yeah. we are different social classes for the moment and actually ask him man to man, like what happened in this story? I'm interested, you know? Yeah. And they have this conversation. And then at the end of it, when he kind of gets to the point where 
he hears Bongo's confession and he can't say anymore, um, he picks up all his things to leave. And there's just this great contrast about the <laughs> the 12 fishermen going back to their, like, oh, we should start a new mm-hmm. tradition, you know, based on this moment. And all yeah. about just kind of grasping at things that are important or whatever that have happened, but just completely missing the point that this yeah. is to be sort of a wake up moment for them. Yeah. Um, and it says Father Brown just like says good evening and pushes open the heavy doors of the Palace of Pleasures and the gold gates close behind him. And he went at a brisk walk through the damp, dark streets in search of a penny omnibus. And it was just yeah. such a great contrast, you know, him kind of going back into his life of, you know, somewhat impoverished and then them just very easily falling back into this life of extravagance. And I think that's something that all of us can easily struggle with when we experience something that sort of jerks us awake or we experience something amazing or even a miracle of some sort mm-hmm. and it we have to like let it change us and so often we don't you know so often we're like yeah. oh amazing for like a day or two and then after that we're just like oh I'm back to my yeah. normal everyday routine you know yeah we're all called to be fishers of men in a way or all fishers of something we're all given gifts and these men were gifted with wealth and when their fish are returned to them what do they do they give pleasure to themselves mm-hmm. right they almost like congratulate themselves for something that they didn't even do <laughs> yeah well colonel pound i think is congratulated for getting the fish service back and it's completely father brown's doing mm-hmm. but he's lower than them and so they won't acknowledge that mm. which is like we weren't given gifts and we weren't given talents so that we could continue gifting ourselves again and again with those gifts. Mm-hmm. Like gifts were meant to be given so that they could be received by others and so that others can benefit. Mm-hmm. And I think we see with Father Brown again and again, like his purpose was to convert Flambeau's soul. And he cared about that conversion. Like at the beginning of the story, it talks about how proud, like how it would have been his best moment, or he would have said it maybe was his best moment because, not because of this expensive, um, you know, set of belongings that he regained for people, but because he maybe converted um, a criminal to an honest way of life and reclaimed him for God. Mm-hmm. And um, I think that it's a shame that in the story there it sort of reminds me of the 10 lepers mm. like all of the fishermen go back to their dinner and continue drinking and continue continue on with their celebrations and um the colonel seems like the only one to sort of return to the healer or return to the to the person who's made a miracle happen Mm. and say thank you and try to you know find out how it was done um but even he slips away sort of back into the oblivion of of their wealth right uh maybe that's maybe that i don't know it sort of reminds me of we don't know what happened to these people afterwards you know maybe maybe colonel pound there was a seed planted there because he was willing to interact with Father Brown. You know, we don't know what happens later. It's sort of like in the gospel, the story of the rich young man, like we don't know whether or not he 
goes back to his wealth forever or if he is frustrated considers it and then eventually follows christ like we were never told um and so who knows what happened but it's definitely a um yeah i don't know it reminds me of flannery o'connor's uh thing about how there's all these breakthroughs of grace which are most often refused um Mm -hmm. that like god she writes her stories about these sort of shocking moments of grace that are meant to wake people up to their own corruption and hypocrisy and you know turn back to the lord but very often her characters don't repent um and i think it's sort of (laughs) it's kind of scary but it's it's supposed to be like a wake-up call you know yeah um for all of us but yeah i just i want to talk a little bit about the again, that's this just like the theme of, of fish and fishermen we've been mentioning. Um, there's a particular quote, which is the quote that we read at the beginning of this episode, um, that is fairly famous because it uh, features prominently in Evelyn Waugh's story, Bride's Head Revisited. Have you ever read that before? I haven't, but I, I have been recommended to read it. So it'll it'll have to go on my list. It is a fantastic book. It's very dense and complicated. Well, it's not that dense. It's very it's complicated in that I think it does a very good job displaying the kind of inner workings of the soul. And um, it sort of follows this character who starts out as an agnostic, um, sort of a skeptic in college. And he encounters this family who are Catholic um, by name and sometimes in practice. And uh, he's kind of taken to their estate. And I won't go into a whole detail, but um, there is a character in that story who sort of goes down a rough path um, and gets into gets himself into a whole lot of trouble and addictions and things like that. And there is a moment when his younger sister, who is a little bit more straight-laced, um, quotes Father Brown. She quotes Chesterton and she quotes this story um, and talks about how there is this you know, unseen hook and invisible line that will allow the person to travel to the ends of the world and to the ends of, you know, sin and whatever else. Um, But it's enough to to bring that person back with a twitch upon the thread. And this character in the story is um, seen to be actually a faithful person um, in the end, even despite all of the craziness that he's gone through and put himself through. Um, And so it's, it's just, it's cool. It's just a I don't know, a great thought that nobody is necessarily too far gone, especially when they've encountered these moments of grace throughout their life um, and been aware of them. Um, Even if they kind of stray from the path, um, there's always hope for them. And I think Father Brown really sees that in Flambeau. Um, There's something about him that he can tell and he's not afraid to, um, to just continually call him you know, just like God continually calls us. Yeah. And I think that the, the waiter actually having the stroke and then needing Father Brown before he passed away was providential um, for Mm -hmm. Flambeau because it brought them together in a, in a Mm -hmm. very singular moment. Um, And the opportunity um, of having confession before he died, I think is something that we really shouldn't gloss over as we're discussing this story. The hotel owner who's Jewish doesn't understand, he sort of thinks it's like a superstitious ritual that Christians have, but Mm -hmm. um, 
the idea of wanting to be at peace with God and to atone for our sins before we die is, um, is incredibly important. And it was an opportunity that God gave, um, in the tragedy of, of death, sin, sin is the, you know, sin causes death. And yet, um, because he was there, because he was asked by this dying man to communicate something to someone somewhere, and we don't know the details because, you know, of the seal of confession, mm-hmm. he's there and present to Flumbo in his great time of need. And it's, you know, prior to him catching him, he might not have thought that it was his great time of need. He might have thought it was his greatest accomplishment because this might have been his most ingenious robbery of all time. We don't know. And um, when he confronts him, it's very clear that Father Brown is not in any way swayed by Flambeau's desire to <laughs> commit this crime. He, he sees what's important. Mm-hmm. Um, I love the line uh, when Father Brown catches him um, because Flambo leaps over the counter into the, the coat room and um, he says, I don't want to threaten you to Father Brown. And Father Brown says, I do want to threaten you. I want to threaten you with the worm that dieth not and the fire that is not quenched. And it's um, pretty intense. <laughs> yeah. And I, I, but I'm like, but he's, he's making a point. Like he mm-hmm. just saw a man moments before he died. Like that yeah. man was going to meet the Lord. Right. Yeah. And whether or not he like, you know, he was, he was making a confession, thank God. And that could have been the difference in his salvation, like coming to the Lord in those last moments of his life. And he's like, this is my opportunity with Flambeau. I need to impress upon him how important this is. And so um, he says, you're a rum sort of cloak cloakroom <laughs> clerk, said, uh, said the other. I am a priest, Monsieur Flambeau, said Brown, and I am ready to hear your confession. I just love it. He's so like, just tells it like it is. <laughs> He's like, here yeah. I am. You ready? You're going to hear your confession? He just, his confidence is very convicting, you know? Yeah. Um, it's just, Flambeau has met his match, you know? <laughs> Because yes. he has this confidence as well that um, that is great. Like, and, and later when we see him, you know, not doing his thieving, um, you see that kind of confidence come through and for good, you know. But um, yeah, Father Brown, they're a great match, <laughs> you know. Absolutely. Absolutely. I think they're, they're both very, very clever men. Mm-hmm. Um, but Father Brown loves him. Mm-hmm. you know, yeah. with the love of God and Flumbo doesn't love himself with the love of God at this, mm-hmm. at this point. And right. so it takes another person, um, being physically present to him and actually standing in his way to convert him. And if you listened to our last episode, we were talking about how the physicality of things is so important. And mm. I think we see that here, he once again presents himself as the person of Christ, um, as a representative of Christ, and, you know, is physically there for him in a moment where he really needs him. Mm, absolutely. Um, one other theme I wanted to talk about is just 
in all of these mysteries that we've been reading, Father Brown is able to solve the crimes because he is not self-centered. Um, I think he doesn't look in on himself so often, um, and he's able then to perceive what is happening around him, um, sort of at a, at a higher pitch than other people can. And I think that, you know, the, the, uh, the 12 fishermen or whatever at the dinner, they don't notice that anything has gone wrong until the waiter, you know, stops in his tracks right in front of them and kind of messes up their whole rhythm. Um, but they're also concerned with themselves. You know, they're, I can imagine them sitting there just being concerned about what everybody else at the table is thinking about them. And they're just, I mean, especially who is it, Mr. Uh, what's his name, Audley or something? Um, Mr. Audley yeah. is uh, just so self-conscious and like self-aware and he's so disturbed when things go wrong and doesn't know how to react and, and everything. And there's this sort of paralysis in that that we're, we're so focused on ourselves um, we're not able to perceive like where God could use our gifts and our talents. Um, we're not able to perceive what's happening around us and to see how we kind of fit into that picture. Um, Father Brown, on the other hand, is sitting in a dark room writing this letter or writing this note or whatever it is. Um, and he's not at all thinking about himself. And it's because he's not thinking about himself that he's able to perceive the sound in the hallway um, and to consider it and to think about it. And he's able to think about Flambeau and, and just like the waiters. And he's so perceptive, like earlier in his life, you know, about what a waiter's gait sounds like, you know, <laughs> like what their yeah. steps sound like and what a, what a wealthy gentleman's footsteps sound like. And when you're thinking about yourself all the time, you don't think of these things. Yeah, he's, he looks outwards enough to notice what's unique about certain kinds of people and he yeah he's thinking about in others so much that he can actually draw these um conclusions like i wouldn't have said that i could listen to somebody walking and recognize what kind of line of work they're in right you know and right. i think that's a unique gift from God that observational ability but you're right it also stems from his humility and his his willingness to look out look outside of himself um what do you think are some just like practical practical takeaways things that we can learn from this story I think that when God gives you an opportunity to be a little bit more selfless take it and when he wakes you up with those little moments of grace, whether they actually feel like grace or whether they come across as suffering, that we should seize those moments and remember where they come from. Life is very fragile and in a moment anyone's health could be compromised and we've all known people who have been seriously ill or who have died even and those are reminders that you know, we aren't meant to live this life in order to please ourselves. That is not the purpose of life. The purpose of life is to serve others, to love God, to serve others, to love one another. So, right. Yeah, I think um, I just had a conversation with one of my roommates the other day, and I, I've been 
regularly going to, it's the first time in my life that I've had a regular confessor, um, somebody that I go to like on a regular basis. And he's just fantastic. And like, when I went, I, I've been, he's really good at trying to help me pray, you know, which seems very like, well, duh, you know, (laughs) but you'd be surprised, I guess. I don't know. He's, he's very focused on like, how, how am I going to pray and how am I going to kind of lean into whatever God is doing right now in my life. And anyways, he was telling me um, that I need to be really honest with God about my frustrations and about the things that I want, like my desires and just the things that I'm looking for and, and all of this stuff. And he's like, you just need to be really honest. You need to be really honest in your prayer. Like don't hide anything from God. Like he can take it, you know? And so that was kind of like the first lesson. And so I was like, okay, okay, okay. So, so for about a month or so, you know, I was like, okay, I need a journal. I need to just like write this stuff out. Like when I'm feeling frustrated, just like be honest, you know, about these things with God. Um, and so I did. And then I had this realization right before I went back to him again, um, that after I had written out all of these, these things, I was like, wow, this prayer was all about me. <laughs> and I was just like, that stinks. Like, that's not really prayer. Like it was all about me. Like I didn't, I wasn't like praising God or like thanking God or whatever. Mm. And I was just like, oh, this is not good. So when I went back to confession, I, it was literally the night before I was going to confession. I went back to confession and I told him that and I was like, yeah, I just realized I'm really selfish. <laughs> I just laughed. <laughs> I was like, I'm just, yeah, I'm just so focused on myself and the things that I want, and my desires and my, you know, things that I want out of life. And he laughed and um, he was like, this is such a grace. This is so good. He's like, that you realize this, um, you know, like you, you need to be honest with God, but also like, yeah, now you can focus your prayer. You can start to focus your prayer more on the contemplation of Christ himself, you know, yeah. to actually get outside of your own head and your own mind and your own desires and like give that to him, but then like focus on him. And I was like, yeah, like I realized that the second piece of the prayer, it's like the first part is to spill my heart out to the Lord. But then like the second piece of the prayer is then to turn my eyes outside of myself and like, look at him because he's the answer, you know? Yeah. And, um, and it was just, it was funny because I felt like I failed and I was talking to my roommate about this and she was like, Oh my gosh, that's, ex- that is exactly what happened to me. Like it, it sucks in the moment. Cause you're like, dang it, I've been doing this wrong. I've been praying wrong, you know? But then she's like, but that's, that actually wasn't, it was the fruit of prayer. The fruit of that prayer, even though it was imperfect, was the realization of like, wake up, like, you need to focus on Christ, you know? Yeah. And so it was not a prayer that was wasted, you know, even though it not wasn't perfect. Yeah. Yeah. So. That's, yeah, we all has, have those realizations where we realize that we're selfish. And then you pray for the Lord to give you opportunities <laughs> to be selfless. And then he gives it to you and you're ticked off because yeah. you don't actually want to do it. It's like so easy to be selfless with people that you adore and like want to do sweet right. things for. And then it's really hard. Like some people just really tax you yeah. when they, when they ask for things or when they are just in your presence. And it makes me think of who, which saint said, make me holy, but not yet. Oh, St. Augustine said, make me change, yeah. but not yet. Yeah. Like we enter each stage of life, um, we are drawn out of ourselves and we are, we are being called more and more into this like selfless way of living for others. Marriage has that, done that a little bit for me, but I, I've seen even now, like it's so easy to be selfish still. Mm-hmm. So I'm hoping that 
<laughs> a, it happens just because I work on it more and B, maybe babies make me a little <laughs> bit more selfless. Yeah. I have one last question, I guess, about the story. Oh, I'd, yeah. I'd be curious to see what your thought was on this. So at the end of the story, Colonel Pound sort of announces his idea to the Duke that he thinks they should wear green coats instead of black in order to distinguish themselves from the waiters. My thought on this was I was a little saddened to hear this because it's just another way to set themselves apart and another way to continue this silly tradition. Right. At the same time, I thought, does Chesterton love this because it's absurd or does he truly think it's just absurd? What were your <laughs> thoughts on that? So does he love like the, the whole thing? Like yeah, yeah. Meeting just to meet. I mean, he he loved societies and yeah, being a part of clubs and groups. That's and, true. He was a part of the JDC. I was thinking about that earlier. They're kind of yeah. ridiculous. They were like, yeah, we're the the junior debating club, but we've never heard of a senior debating club. We don't know <laughs> yeah. anything. Yeah, we you know are all official with what we do. Um, I think there's a certain sense of importance, but I think also they're their their goals in the club were something that was real you know they were actually they wanted to find the truth yeah they were they were seeking the truth they were discussing good literature they were doing things that you know were actually beneficial to them and made them into the men that they all became you know and um sitting around and having dinner and doing nothing else in your yeah (laughs) it's kind of like maybe there's nothing wrong with with sitting around and enjoying a nice dinner with your friends but absolutely uh, you know Amen. Like, yeah. I part of me wonders if he saw this as like, you know how every every good thing can be twisted into something sinful basically. Yeah. Like maybe this is the desire for companionship and celebration and mm-hmm. feasting mm-hmm. sort of twisted in a way yeah. that makes it sinful. But yeah. there are elements of it that are not wrong. Mm-hmm. Um but looking down on others not really having a purpose, all of that can be, I don't know, sort of wasted time. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think, I think you're onto something there. I think that the, the desire for companionship and there's something that is just so human about communing over a meal, you know, I mean, this is the central point of our faith, you know, is the Eucharist, you know, Christ um, coming to give himself as food, you know, and and like we come together as a family of God around this table, you know, and there's something that's so, so deep about that. Um, And I think, yeah, there's a sort of contrast that we see in the story where it's like good things, but then there's an emptiness there that there's something missing, you know, there's something that it's not directed towards um, the ultimate good, you know? Mm. Um, so yeah, yeah, I like that. But I also agree with you that I think Chesterton sort of delights in the absurdity of things. <laughs> Just Like I'm sure this story made him laugh as, oh, well yeah. as he was writing it. He's not like angrily writing this story. I can't yeah. imagine that, you know, like, oh, yeah. the aristocrats or whatever. Like, I think that they made him laugh. I think he was able to, I think he was able to love people like Father Brown was, you know, that he was able to kind of see people with all their faults and all their failings and everything and still delight in what was good in them. You know, like, I don't think he saw, he was never a person to write somebody off completely as totally bad, you know, and I think he 
saw the good and the bad in his own self. And that's yeah. why he was able to see other people that way. Yeah. I guess my last thought, and then we can wrap up, is just the um, feeding of the 5,000 mm. in, in scripture and, yeah. versus this meal and how Christ took fish and bread and multiplied it to feed all of these people who were hungry and had had no other way of eating. And this monstrous fish course that's set down before the, the 12 true fishers, which is always in quotes in the text. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that comparison is done on purpose. I think, I think that we are meant to see how um, the multiplication of fish is like it it could be a good and a holy thing and it's just not in this story it, it it's just um transformed into something else um but yeah i think i, I think he would see it in a lighthearted way and mm-hmm. like you said you never know if what father brown said about um you know unrepentant aristocrats um mm-hmm. it might have struck a chord with them and yeah but apparently to this day they still celebrate in, in the hotel <laughs> yeah. and have this this fish dinner every year but anyway those were my last my last thoughts great all right well do you um do you have anything that you want to talk about that you're grateful for this week i am extremely grateful for baptism mm. i got to i've gotten to go to a few baptisms lately uh the last few months and honestly baptisms make me cry because (laughs) i think they're so beautiful i love to see a fresh christian come into the church and i think of the gift of dying to yourself and being risen in christ being clothed in christ um which was shown with the white garment and I'm, i'm grateful for my baptism this week and and to be a part of this mystical body of Christ. What about you? That's so beautiful. Yeah, I um, I would say I cry during baptisms, and I do, but I cry during everything, so <laughs> it doesn't really stand out. <laughs> but um, but so it's so beautiful. I I know a priest that uh, whenever he would baptize a child, he would kind of like talk to the child a little bit, like the the baby, and he would kind of say like, "You're the," and he'd be on the mic, you know, "You're the." holiest one in this whole church right now like I bet you what are you looking at like are you seeing the angels do you see the angels you know and he would just like speak to them and it was so sweet it was just a reminder to everyone else in the church um you know he would do this like the baptism in the midst of Sunday mass you know so um yeah the whole congregation is there and uh it was sort of a reminder of um of the reality of this child's soul you know um mm-hmm. the beauty of that but anyways um, mine is is a bit more simple, but um, the again we're recording this in December, and it's only just now sort of fall here in Louisiana, <laughs> and um, so there's not usually a, a ton of color. Um, but this year, for whatever reason, we guess just had the the good combination of weather where we have tons of beautiful bright colors everywhere, and there's you know still a lot of green. But, uh, but these trees just keep catching my eye. And like when I'm walking down the street or even just like lying in my bed um, next to the window, there's this tree outside my window that's just gorgeous and bright orange. And it's just been 
sort of like these little reminders, you know, of, of God's goodness and the beauty of creation um, just throughout each day when I pass a tree and I'm just like, <gasps> like not expecting the it. Glory you know? of God. Right. That's so amazing. And, and I think it's even more special to me because again, we don't really have many fall colors here in Louisiana, so I'm not expecting it. And then all of a sudden, you know, there it is. And it's just, um, it's great. So. Great. Well, we will see you all next week. Um, we are going to be discussing our final Father Brown for a while, um, the Flying Stars. As we've said previously, everything um, is in the public domain. We will link it. Please read it um, before the next episode and um, join us for our discussion next week as we jump into that story. Great. And then you can find us at um, pipeswithchesterton.com as well as on Instagram at pipeswithchesterton and pipeswithchesterton at gmail.com. Yep. Great. So, um, yeah, that's about it. May you all enjoy Lives of Wit and Whimsy. Cheers. Cheers. Cheers.